whom it takes them a little bit by surprise. We're not after your money, particularly if you're here for the first time you're just visiting. But for those who want to, um, the opportunity is now, and some blue buckets are going to be passed around. Now, also, because we have a baptism today, uh, the covers on the pool down here are about to be moved. Um, so kids especially, in a moment will come the time where we can all gather around, but don't do that just yet. Uh, it would be unfortunate if we had impromptu uh, baptisms that we weren't really expecting. Um, and then you don't have any spare clothes with you. So blue buckets are coming around. At some point, these covers will be moved as well. Then I will say, when the time comes, if you'd like to, um, when we have a baptism, uh, people tend to gather right around the front or up in the balcony. So that will uh, happen in just a little while. But while those things are happening, let me just uh, mention a few other things that will be taking place today. Uh, after we've uh, had a baptism here uh, in just a few moments, then the other elder of the church, Richard, is going to come and bring uh, God's word to us from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And then we'll probably look to conclude the meeting uh, between an hour and an hour and a quarter's time, so around about half past twelve. Uh, at that point, please don't rush away. Through either of these doors at the front, you can make your way downstairs uh, where tea and coffee is served or cold drink. Uh, you can have a, a look at the bookshop if you want to. And because it is a, it's the last Sunday of the month in the English summer, um, we're going to have a picnic uh, down in Encliffe Park. Um, so it, hopefully many of you have already come prepared for that. Uh, what we tend to do is, after a tea and coffee break downstairs, from about one o'clock onwards, I guess people are gathering, um, we tend to be quite a large group, so just look for the largest group of people who are sat together, and you will find us. Normally just beyond Encliffe Park uh, Cafe, it's just great to have some time uh, together there, and if, to eat together, and to have some fun and games as well. Uh, if you haven't brought any food with you, then you've got a couple of options. Just come along, because I'm sure others have brought uh, extra stuff. If you want to, you can buy a, f- a few things for yourself um, uh, at an unnamed nearby supermarket uh, somewhere on Ecclesall Road. Uh, we wouldn't want anyone to feel like they can't come along, so please do uh, come along. It would be great to see you uh, there. Then, later on this afternoon, at half past three, we have Kids Core. So if you're between the ages of 5 and 11, if you go to primary school during the week, then Kids Corps this afternoon is just for you. And Neil and the Helen and the rest of the team uh, would love to spend some time with you, kind of gathering again up here in this room, not quite as many of you as this meeting right now, um, but gathering to the Word of God to look at God's Word and what it means and how what it means to believe it and what it means to live it out in our lives. We want you to be encouraged uh, in your journey, um, knowing God. And so we want to encourage you to that time. Now, if your parents are thinking, well, what will I, what will I do? If you want to, drop them at half past three uh, downstairs. You can, if you like, stick around uh, for the hour that Kids Corps happens. Or, of course, you can go and then uh, return. But that's a great opportunity uh, for those who want to go to Kids Corps. Okay. Now, I think the time is coming for a baptism. The covers are off. The blue buckets are making their way somewhere else. So in a lovely, orderly and friendly way, feel very free to come and gather around the front. If you know your way to the balconies and you want to get a better vantage point from there, then feel very free to do that. something to say, if you'd like to say that, then um, I'm sure someone could be nearby to give you a bit of moral support. Um, Then me and Beth will go down in the pool, we'll invite you down as well, Well, people will pray first, and then we'll uh, baptise. Alright? I should take my glasses off for the water. I think you probably should. (laughs) Don't worry about that just now though. Okay, I trust you are in a place where you're comfortable, 
You can see if you want to. And uh, more importantly, I suppose, hear what's going on as well. It's a great privilege. This is a reason to, to celebrate when someone comes to the point of deciding for themselves that they'd like to, uh, to get baptised. It wasn't that long after Jesus died and rose again that his friends, his followers, were explaining to others the significance of what had just happened. They, uh, they, they preached the good news about Jesus, that he is... Uh, God in the flesh. He is God's son. And the reason that he came uh, was to live a life in perfect obedience uh, to God the Father, which we could never do because we've all sinned. We've all turned away from God one way or another. So we needed someone to come and live the life we never could. Jesus did that. And because he did that, he could offer his life in our place. Uh, he died on the cross so that God's just anger at our sin would go on him and we could receive, in Jesus' name, forgiveness for all our sins for absolutely forever that we might receive eternal life. It is good news. And when uh, Peter was sharing it, um, early on in the book of Acts, we're told that the many who heard this, they heard the good news, they, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter rep- replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repent and be baptized. Repentance speaks of somebody making a choice to turn away from living life their own way, to turn towards God and to receive the help that's only available in, in him and to say, God, I, with your help, I want to live your way. I want to follow your way. It's, not, no, it's no longer about me being in charge of my life. I trust you. So you're in charge of my life. Being baptized then is the public demonstration of what's happened on the inside. If someone's chosen to, to repent and follow Jesus, that's followed by uh, kind of a, a public announcement, a public demonstration. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I'm trusting him and I'm following him. So what's going to happen in just a few moments? Um, I'm going to ask Emily. Uh, she's come prepared to say a few words about what's brought her to this point. Uh, me, Beth and Emily will go down into the pool. Before we baptize Emily, we're then going to wait to give different people an opportunity uh, to pray for her and maybe to share scripture, what you feel God might be highlighting for her at this particular point in her life before we baptize her. Pray for her again, and then onwards with the rest of the meeting. Okay, are you ready, Emily? Yeah? Emily, I think, may be feeling a little bit nervous. This is not something that many people do very often, speak to such a large group uh, of people. So I'm sure that uh, all your warm, smiley faces will communicate to Emily what's obviously true is that we're totally for her and with her and excited to be uh, seeing what's happening today. Emily, do you want to say a few words? Um, I first came to church almost three years ago and took part in the Youth Health course and then joined Fusion. Uh, I really enjoyed learning about Christianity and singing, but that was pretty much it. I was massively sceptic and pretty much completely atheist. And it was a long, bumpy, winding, crazy road that brought me to this point. I'd say a pivotal time for me was that new day. Um, other than epic worships and insightful seminars, I think the biggest thing I came away with were a few words from Gemma. Um, she said, God loves me, he loves Amelia, and he's got a plan for us. Um it was exactly what I needed to hear at that point, and it stayed with me. I admit to getting a bit lost again since then, but over the last couple of months, I feel like this is really right for me. This is where I should be, where God wants me to be, and I'm embracing that with open arms. Thank you very much, Emily. Well done.
Fantastic. Well, Emily and Beth and Dan are going to go and get warm, <laughs> get dried off. If the rest of you would like to be very carefully making your way back to your seats. Once you've made it back to your seats, if you've got a Bible with you, you might like to be turning to Hebrews chapter 8, which we're going to look at today. If you haven't got a Bible with you, the words should appear on the screen behind me as well. You'll be able to follow along there. Um, nice sound. I'm, 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 I was halfway between trying to plough on or just letting Ben and Simon get on with putting the uh, covers back on. Now they're there. I'll carry on. I'm not distracted by them going on. So, Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 8. And then we'll, we'll kind of look at where we've got to so far in the letter of Hebrew, to the Hebrews. And then we're mainly going to focus on Hebrews 8 verse 6 to the end. But we'll read the first six verses first. So the first couple we looked at last time we were looking at, at Hebrews. Uh, and we'll go from there. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that's a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Last time we got up to the, we've been going through this glorious picture that's been built up through the letter to the Hebrews. Jesus has come. He is greater. He is the savior. He's the great high priest. He's the one who's better than all that has gone before. And last time we saw the the wonderful truth of that in the fact that this is the main point. This is the real, this is, this is the reality. We've got such a high priest. Jesus has come. And and these first few verses of Hebrews chapter 8 look at opening up that comparison even more. Look, once before there were the old priests of the old covenant. Now look, Jesus has come. And they look at Three, three big meaty topics, three big 
maybe slightly old-fashioned sounding words, which we're going to look at over the next few times we look at the, the, the letter to the Hebrews. One being sacrifice. We see that in verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. We see the sacrifice being the thing that the high priest would offer to God. The thing that the high priest would bring to offer to God. So we'll see that comparison. We also see the tabernacle. And this is, this is all about where the priest would minister, where the priest would come with his sacrifice, or where the priest would come and would be doing his, performing his role as priest. And we see in verse 2, it says, Jesus serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. And that's compared with verses 4 and 5, where it tells us that if Jesus was on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. But they serve in a sanctuary that's a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So again, a comparison of, look, Jesus is in the real, true sanctuary. These priests were only in a copy And then what we're going to look at primarily today, the third word is covenant. Covenant. The covenant under which the priest is mediating, under which the priest is serving, under which this is what the priest is carrying out, the work of the covenant. And we see in verse 6, this is what we're going to look at today. But in fact, the ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. And we'll see that the rest of chapter 8, when we look at it in a minute, goes on to talk about this covenant. It quotes the prophet Jeremiah and goes to talk about the old covenant that God made with his people and now the new covenant that he has made. But first, it, it is an old-fashioned word. It's, a, it's maybe a difficult word to get hold of. There are uses of the word covenant today. But in general, we see this as a word that crops up through the Bible and it may not be the most obvious thing for us to know, but we see covenant is it's about an agreement between two parties. Covenant, it's a promise. It's a solemn thing. It's not trivial. In a sense, today, there's, 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 uh, there's similarities to contracts in the fact, in the sense that they're binding. There's a binding sense. And in fact, you'll see covenants on buildings these days that a building, there's an agreement that's been made that this is what's going to happen with this building. This covenant is in place. It's a binding agreement about what's going to happen. But we see in the Bible, the word covenant has that binding, non-trivial, very serious sense to it. But also, there's a real sense of relationship about it. The word covenant gets used, it's a covenant between us. There's a, throughout scripture we see that this is what God does. He enters into covenant with his people. There's a, it's an agreement, it's binding, but it's God with his people. And we see that. In all sorts of places. But in right back early on in the Bible, God speaks to Noah. We'll know the story of Noah and his ark. That God saves Noah and all the animals from the big flood that he brings. But after the flood, God speaks to Noah. We see that in Genesis chapter 9. And God makes a covenant with Noah. And we see particularly in chapter 9, verse 9, this is God speaking, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So you see in this kind of key moment God makes a covenant with Noah and with his descendants and with all the animals he's making a promise but with them 
We see a God who establishes covenant with his people. And of course, the writer to the Hebrews has already picked up on Abraham. God makes promises to Abraham. We see that in chapter 6, verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. He makes great promises to Abraham, but... We see them all through Genesis, but we see that this is a covenant relationship that God is making with Abraham. We see that particularly in Genesis chapter 17, verse 4 and onwards. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And he goes on, he's making promises to Abraham, but this is covenant relationship. This is God entering into an agreement with his people. This is what I'm going to do. This is going to be our agreement together. And what we see in the word covenant, what we see in covenant in the Bible is that we have a God we can trust. We have a God who enters into covenant, into promises with his people And we have a God who keeps his promises. We have a God we can trust. At the outset today, as we're looking at this whole subject, let's get hold of this. We have a faithful God. A God who makes promises and a God who keeps promises. If you don't know him today, this is my message to you. There is a God in heaven. He's a good God He's a God who loves you, but he's a God you can trust. He's a God who is faithful. He's a God who makes promises and a God who keeps them. And just at the outset, if you're confused, if you're fearful this week, particularly with the news of this week, perhaps you're joyful about the news of this week, of the referendum and the result, perhaps you're really scared. All sorts of range of opinion has come out. All sorts of different things. People, yes, this is incredible what's happened. Man, this is awful what's happened. However you're feeling, however you receive the news on Friday morning, this is the truth. We have a God we can trust. We have a God who is sovereign over everything. We have a God who is in control. We can trust him. And also in that, we can be a people united in trusting him. There'll be all sorts of opinion, even across this room, about whether the referendum result was a good thing, a bad thing. Actually, I'm not sure what's going to happen next. All sorts. But over and above all of that, we trust God. We believe him. We believe that he is in control. And so just while I'm talking about that, it's okay to feel sad. Because in your mind, you feel, man, I I just think that this decision could lead to some pain for a lot of people. It's okay to feel that. It's okay to be joyful, thinking, actually, I think this is a good step for our country. It's okay in both of those things. But we're a people living for God's. We're a people living for God, trusting him and trusting that he, he has the answers. He is in control. And whatever good or bad comes out of what's happened this week, we can trust him. Okay, that was a bit of an aside, but it is the point. God is a covenant making God. He keeps his promises. He is faithful. But what do we see specifically about this? This verse six particularly we look at the covenant that Jesus is mediator to is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. That's what it's going to go on and look at in the next few verses. We're going to look at them. Let's, in fact, let's read them now. Verse Hebrews 8, we'll start at verse 6. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. 
For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbours or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And in looking at these verses this morning, we're going to see, um, we're going to draw out three things. One, that there was a big problem. But two, that there are better promises. And three, to keep the B's and P's going... There is something that is blatantly pointless. We'll get to that. But we'll start with the big problem. God comes into, God is speaking through Jeremiah, the writer to the Hebrews quotes, uh, this whole passage that is a quote of, uh, is what God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. And in that we see the old covenant that God is referring to. He takes us right back to God leading his people from Egypt. You see, this comes after the the lasting promise that God's made to Abraham that the writers of the Hebrews has, has highlighted so clearly so far. That he would build a great people, a great nation. That Abraham would be father of many, as many as the stars in the sky, and that through all his offspring, through his offspring, all nations will be blessed. And we see this promise reiterated to Isaac and Jacob, Abraham's son and, and his son, and through down to the point the people are taken to Egypt as slaves. Then God makes this covenant with his people. As, as Jeremiah says, he took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. God comes and rescues his people from Egypt, and he makes a covenant with them. They're led out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19, we see that God makes this covenant with Moses. Exodus 19, in the first few verses, uh, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say, to the, you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." And this is what Moses goes back and speaks to the Israelites. God makes a covenant, a big promise with his people. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant. We see that reiterated in Deuteronomy 4. Moses again speaking. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 13. This is Moses saying, this is what God declared to you. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them down on two stone tablets. God makes a promise with them and gives them laws to keep, gives them a covenant to follow. He makes this covenant and says, follow me, obey my commands. And and if you do that, what? Then you will be my treasured possession. It's a big promise. It's wonderful. 
And this is the covenant and the law and the priesthood that was then established that Israel and then Israel and Judah as the the kingdom split apart lived under from then on. And in fact, the Jews today would still see as their covenant relationship with God. It's a big promise. You will be my treasured possession. So what is this big problem? We see there's a problem. There's something wrong. The writer to the Hebrews tells us In verse 7, for if there'd been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. And he goes on, but God found fault with the people. God found fault with the people. And and the Jeremiah quote shows us what God said. This is what the problem was. In verse 9, the second part, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. God found fault with the people. The big promise was there. If you obey my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession. The writer picks this up. The writer to the Hebrews picks that up in Hebrews 3 when he's saying, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. We see throughout the Old Testament that God's people, they've been given this covenant, this relationship with God. If you obey me, and time and again, they couldn't keep the covenant. They couldn't, they couldn't do it. They kept falling away. The writer to the Hebrews picks up at that time, even in the desert, those who, uh, rebelled in the, those who rebelled in the rebellion, that's true. Those who hardened their hearts in the rebellion. But Jeremiah also saw it in his time. In Jeremiah, we see this, this, Prophecy from God was coming through Jeremiah at that time, but Jeremiah's seen it there. And if you remember back a, a long time, we looked at King Josiah before, we, before I started looking at Hebrews. And King Josiah, he came back to God. He said, look, this, we need to follow God. We need to follow what he has decreed. And the people say, yes, okay, we're going to go for it. But Jeremiah says, look, even then, what God says to Jeremiah, even then, in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, during the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She's gone up on every high hill. In fact, he goes on with that for a while, but then Josiah is speaking to Judah, but God says, look, you've seen what Israel did. But then in verse 10, in spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. They made a great statement, we're going to do it, we're going to follow. But their hearts weren't turned back to God, they weren't changed. It was just, it was just as God says, pretense. They were just maybe trying a bit, but their hearts weren't turned back to God. It's what we see again and again to the point where Israel and Judah are taken into exile. They, they, they're taken out of the land that God promised to them. They did not remain faithful to my covenant. God found fault with the people. It's a big problem. It sounds very bleak. It was a big problem. But what was the problem with the old covenant? That the people couldn't keep it. What was the problem? Us. Us. For we are a rebellious, sinful people. A fallen people. So I could go further. What's the problem with the old covenant? It cannot completely deal with sin. In Hebrews, in the chapter before, he's been talking about this. Verse 18, the former regulation, the law, is set aside because it was weak and useless. Why? Was it bad in and of itself? No. But it's because of this, for the law made nothing perfect. The law couldn't change us. The old covenant could not make the Hebrews in the desert, or the people of Judah under King Josiah, or the Hebrews that our author is addressing, or us, perfect. The old covenant couldn't do it. In fact, we see Paul brings us to the point of realisation that the law 
the old covenant in Romans 3 verse 20. Couldn't make us perfect, couldn't restore fully our relationship with God. But in fact, in Romans 3 verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, what does it do? Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Through the law, we understand. Through this, through this, we see how much we need God. How much we need our sin to be dealt with. Because the truth is, we're not basically okay or relatively good. No, the Bible tells us the truth that by nature we are objects of wrath. Since Adam, since the fall in the Garden of Eden, since then, all of humanity has fallen. We're people subject to the wrath of God because we're not perfect. We're not, we can't live up to God's standards. And therefore we cannot be in relationship with God because our sinful nature is against God. And yet we see we have a covenant-making God who wants to be in relationship with his people, who wants to draw a people to himself. There's a big problem. There's a big problem with the old covenant. There's a big problem for us. Our sin. We cannot deal with it ourselves. We cannot just try harder to be good. But God doesn't leave it there. God doesn't say, well, that was the deal, you failed. Goodbye. No. What does God say through Jeremiah? There's good news. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. What we see, yes, there is a big problem, but now we see a covenant that is built on better promises. God brings in this new covenant. It's superior. It's better. It's built on better promises. Let's read verse 10 to 12. Let's see this. We've seen the bad news, the big problem. But this is it. Verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. Look at this. I will put my laws on their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their guards and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbours and say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. We see a passage full of the promises of God. Full of the wonderful promises of God. I will put my laws on their hearts. I will be their God. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And the promise that they will all know me from the least to the greatest. What the writer is showing to us is the promises of the new covenant. They are so much greater. Starting with these two small words. I will. Who's speaking? God is speaking. This is God's initiative. This is God who is doing it. This is God who is making this wonderful new covenant with his people. There are three things that we draw from these promises. So this is, this is in point two. There are three things. One, that the new covenant deals with our hearts. The new covenant deals with the heart. The book of he- the writer of the Hebrews goes on to say that under the law there was there was this matter of external regulations and externally following the law, doing this, doing the things that will kind of kind of satisfy. But it wasn't dealing with the heart. It wasn't dealing with the with it. And yet, what does God say under the new covenant? It's not just follow the rules. It's not just if you obey, but now I will put my law on their, in their minds and write it on their hearts. God's dealing with our hearts. Ezekiel picks up on that theme in Ezekiel chapter 30, 36 and in verse 26. 
Again, God speaking through Ezekiel, look what he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God puts in place a new covenant and he deals with our hearts. He doesn't just say, do this. He says, look what I am doing. Look what I am doing. I'm dealing with your heart. I'm changing you. I'm putting my spirit in you. So that, yes, then you can follow me. You can obey my commands. You can, you can follow me. But it's God who's changing our hearts. It must lead us to an understanding. This big problem and this kind of first of the better promises lead to this understanding. Look, we cannot do this ourselves. This isn't just about following the rules, about doing the right thing, about looking relatively good. Oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm better than that person. I, I, I'm doing a good job. No. An understanding that we, in and of ourselves, are sinful, fallen people who need our hearts changed by the living God. And secondly, we see, although technically it's not in this order in the passage, that we need forgiveness. We see God, he deals with our hearts, he deals with sin. It's the big problem in the old covenant. The people kept failing. The people couldn't follow God because they were sinful. But the new, we see this promise, I will forgive their wickedness. And will remember their sins no more. What God is showing us is that he deals with our sin. And we're reminded at this point that this is the new covenant that Jesus mediates. And what did Jesus say about the new covenant? This is the new covenant in my blood. This is a new covenant of better promises. We see God bringing forgiveness, bringing, dealing with our sin. The problem was us. The guilt was ours. The sin was ours. The Bible says in different places, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've gone the wrong way. In another place, all have sinned and fallen short. We'd all not met the standard. And yet God has made a way. Jesus paid the price. We see the new covenant. This is God's initiative. God is doing it. Jesus has done it. It's why Paul can write in Romans 8 verse 1. This wonderful truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. We've seen Emily get baptized today and heard what Dan was saying before. We can be forgiven. But we come to that place of repenting and saying, God, I can't do this my own way. My own way is all wrong. But your way, I'm turning to you. I know I've messed up. I know I, in and of myself, am sinful and fallen and I cannot live up to your standard. And yet I know that with you, with you, I need your spirit. I need your forgiveness. I need the forgiveness that comes by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection. I'm turning to your way, God. We see in the comparison of the new and old covenant, it's not any sense of, oh, how can I do it better? How can I manage to do it better? How can I... How can I earn my way into God's presence? No, we cannot do it. We cannot, but God has done it in Jesus. He brings forgiveness. Our part is to believe in him, to turn away from our way and to come to him. And so thirdly, they will know me. I will be their God. These promises come through. The point of The new covenant, the better promises, what does it lead to? We see God dealing with our hearts. We see the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. 
so we can know the Father. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then this wonderful truth, that they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. We get a sense, a wonderful picture there of no longer is there any sense of God being far off. No longer is it that Moses would go out to the tent and he would meet with God. And then he'd go back and talk to the people. And the people stayed away. But God says they will all know me. From the least to the greatest. We can all come to God and know him. We don't just join a club where one or two people up at the front have some kind of special access to God and that we kind of tell you what God is saying. No, we can all know him. That is the truth. From the least to the greatest is not just the likely candidates. Not just those who maybe feel like they've had the best start in life or they come from the best background. We see that with the disciples. We see that with Jesus' disciples. This ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. And you could see that in their day, they were seen as not good enough by the, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. You thought, what are you doing hanging around with these blokes? What, what on earth is this? But this is the truth that God brings. A new covenant has come. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. It's not about being good enough or being important enough, but we can know the Father. We can come to knowing God because he deals with our hearts, because he forgives us and brings us in so that we can follow God. I love the quote uh, Blessan put up on, I'm not sure if it was your quote, Blessan, or whether you'd quoted someone else. I presume it was yours, actually, the way you put it. But that grace is not simply leniency when we've sinned. Is it you? You don't know, you can't remember it now. That's fine. Blessam was quoting someone else. I will, uh, I will def- deflect credit, but I credit Blessam for putting it up. Grace is not simply leniency when we've sinned. Everyone's probably saying now, Rich, this is such a famous quote. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. We're brought in. We are forgiven. The grace of God. He brings us into a place where we can follow him. He gives us his spirit. He gives us power to live for him. With changed hearts. Hearts changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what Romans 8 actually goes on to say, that we can live by the Spirit. We quoted the first couple of verses a minute ago. This new covenant, this new covenant has come. But we can be forgiven. We can have our hearts changed. And we can know the Father. How? Well, we recognize the big problem. We recognize our sin. We recognize our position we cannot do it. And we come to him. We're born again into his kingdom. We're given new hearts and saved by his grace. So that now we can live for him. And that sense, the church isn't a club of like-minded religious people. But we're a people who have had our lives turned around by the living God. So that now we are the people of God. We are living for him. This covenant is built, is, is superior because it is built on better promises. By his blood we're forgiven. God has come, his initiative to set us free. So that now we can know him and live for him. So the third point, the third BP, what is blatantly pointless we've seen this big problem our sin our imperfection the fact we cannot live up to God's standard we've seen that now the better promises of the new covenant we can be free we can be brought into relationship with God we can be forgiven we see the glorious truth look this is the case this is the main point we do have such a high priest 
What does the writer of the Hebrews start his letter with? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is true and wonderful. So what is pointless? To go back. To go back to the old way. For one reason, because the truth is we cannot do it. We have all failed. We cannot justify ourselves before God. But also, what does the writer conclude chapter 8 with? By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. The old has gone. The new has come. Jesus has brought in a new covenant. This is the way. That way has gone. The old way has been superseded because the new has come. We can see that the old prepared the way for Jesus. It showed us our need of a saviour. It showed us our need for our sin to be dealt with. But now Jesus has come. It is so utterly, blatantly pointless to go back to the old way of doing things. And yet, and yet it is so easy to slip into. Perhaps for them, or perhaps we can look at it and think for them who were reading this letter to start with, it was so much more obvious. Or we could think that way. Don't go back. Well, don't go back to the synagogue. Don't go back to... The, the, the sacrifices that the priests, perhaps at that time, although we don't know exactly when the letter was written, before or after the temple was destroyed, perhaps they're still doing it. It's there. This way is, is still there for them to go back to. It's, it kind of seems more obvious to us. Well, we, we can think, well, we, we haven't in that sense come out of that. We haven't come out of a system where we, we went and offered sacrifices in the, at, the, at the temple in Jerusalem. We didn't do that. We never did that. It could feel like, yeah, there's an obvious sense for them. Oh, don't go back to that. Keep trusting Jesus. But for us, it's still so easy to slip into the attitudes and practices that just speak of this old, inferior, and now obsolete covenant. Haven't I done well? Look what's happening to me. I don't deserve any of this. I know that's a problem, but I've made up for it by doing this other thing. I know I know, I shouldn't be doing this, but look at all this good that I've done. It's not fair. All these attitudes can creep in and it affects everything that we are doing. And our routines can become so important. I must do X, Y, and Z. I must read my Bible at this time. And I must pray for this particular length of time. And I must do this. And therefore, if I do, then God will accept me. And God will love me all the more. No. We're saved by the wonderful grace of God. So that, yes, we can come and we want, we want to get stuck into this. And we want to relate to our Father. We want to pray to him and hear from him. But we can so easily distort it and go back to, if I do this, then God will accept me. If I do this, and now, oh, I've done this, and I've got to somehow make up for it. And that attitude of, it's not fair, can so easily creep in. Trivially, I was fixing my bike last week. Well, I wasn't fixing my bike, it's still not fixed. Um, that's the story. I said, I, I, I knew, oh, I've got to prepare. I, I haven't got a lot of evenings free and I've got to prepare for this preach and I've got to do this. And that, but I'll set aside this time and I'll, I'll do, I'll fix my bike on this evening. And I don't know why it was going so well. Wonderfully, I was replacing brake cables and different things, putting them in. It's all good. I'm just testing the brakes out at the end. Then something slipped and it wasn't tightened up properly and it all... The cable got frayed and it's ruined and I need a new one. Everything went wrong. And even in that kind of situation, it was my, my mistake. It was my fault. 
Even in that situation, you can just creep straight in. I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. I've, I've set aside this time to do this, and now I'm back to square one. I deserve better than this, surely. It's nonsense. It's ridiculous. And yet in everything we do, it can so easily creep in. I deserve better than this. Haven't I, I, I thought I was doing well, so surely it should work out for me. No. No, we've, we go away so easily from the wonderful grace that tells us, look, you were nothing. You were lost. Dead in sin. And Jesus has picked you up, has lifted you from that and brought you into relationship with God. I deserve nothing. And he's brought me in. And yet it's not fair that my bike broke again. What? And that is trivial. I know that's trivial. There are so many bigger things. But our trust, our hope is in the saving grace of God. In in his wonderful grace that has brought us in. But we can so slip to these different attitudes that say, it should work out for me. It should be good. I, it's not fair. Because we put our hope in so many other things. Things that may seem very good. Things that may seem very important. We've seen over these last couple of weeks examples of the fact that everything else can be shaken. We've seen that in different ways through the referendum. If your hope and your trust was just being pulled into, as long as we stay in, as long as we remain, everything will be okay, then that has seriously been shaken. But perhaps equally that our hope can get put on, but if we leave, everything will be amazing. And that can very quickly be shaken. We've seen 50 people shot dead in a gay club in Orlando. Just like that, gone. Live, taken away. We've seen Joe Cox, the MP in, up in West Yorkshire. Just like that, shot dead. Everything can be shaken. There, there is, our trust could be in, whether it's in voters to make the decision we think is the right one, whether it's in government, whether it's in money, whether it's in, if I go to this place, I'll be safe. Maybe not. If I, whatever it is, everything can be shaken, but God's. We can trust him. Trusting anything else is diverting our eyes from the truth. We deserve nothing. He has saved us. We can trust him and we're following him. Don't slip back to the old. The old shows us, all it does is it shows us we are sinners who deserve death and yet we're saved by his grace. A new covenant in his blood. It's secure, it's wonderful. That is where our hope needs to be. That's why Paul can write, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor the things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we kind of come to land where we started. God is a covenant God. He's a God who makes promises and he keeps his promises. The glorious truth is that we can know him 
through the wonderful, better promises of the new covenant. We can be in relationship with him and we can trust him. And we can trust him. Our hope is so secure in him. Let me finish with that wonderful verse in Hebrews uh, 6. God made his promise to Abraham and he confirmed it with an oath. And verse 18 said this. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We have hope in him, the mediator of a superior covenant, the one who brings us to God. Let's pray. Father God, (laughs) Father God, it is glorious truth to see the wonderful promises that you have made and to know that you are a God who keeps his promises utterly that we have a hope that is so secure. And that in this glorious new covenant of which Jesus is the mediator, we can know you. Our sins can be washed away. Our hearts can be transformed as you make us more and more like your son. We are able to live for you. Where before it was impossible and we would always fail on our own. Yet with you, you have brought us in to covenant relationship that will never be broken because you are faithful. You are faithful, God. Amen. Let's stand and worship him as we respond. He humbled himself and carried the cross.